Well, good evening, church family. Hey, it's a joy to be here with you tonight and uh, to be able to share a message with you. You know, we're going to talk about a fairly weighty matter. We're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ here. Uh, But let me start with perhaps a little bit of a lighter subject. Um, How are you at the sight of blood? You know, do you uh, do you get a little woozy? Do you get a little faint? Perhaps some of us here. Maybe somebody gets a little a little gag reflex when you think about the sight of blood. Me, actually, I'm pretty good with the sight of blood. In fact, uh, before I felt led to ministry, I was considering firefighting as a career. And so back uh, when I was growing up in high school in Orange County, California, I was doing all these ride-alongs with my local fire department. And... Um, it would be, you know, 24-hour shifts with the guys. I'd be a, a fourth man on an engine, and we'd go on all the calls. It was fun. It was exciting. And then I also had, with that, an internship at an emergency room. It was a, a level one trauma center, and so saw various things there. Uh, I've got four kids. I was there for the birth of all my kids, so I, I made it through, you know, stranger incidents. I made it through family incidents. So I've made through some different scenarios there. But... There is one thing, you know, I'm almost ashamed to admit this. There's one thing, despite all that I've seen, that still gets me a little bit, and it gets me a little woozy inside. Maybe you can relate. Needles. I don't know what it is. You know, it's the strangest thing, too, because uh, I could see a needle, and I'm just fine. In fact, I could even give you an injection, and I would be just fine. But sometimes when people talk about needles... Just that. I don't know what it does to me, but it's something inside. You know what it does? It just makes me reflexively want to curl up my fingers and toes. You know, in fact, as I was writing this message, I'm typing out, I was starting to feel a little woozy a couple times as I was getting this all prepared. I remember one time several years ago, I was uh, driving down a busy freeway in Southern California, and a uh, report came on the radio. And it was all about something medical, and they kept mentioning needles, this and needles, that. I had to reach over and turn off the radio because I started feeling myself get faint as I was driving along. And then one time in uh, college, I went to a blood drive and, uh, you know, just going to give blood. I ended up leaving because I was concerned I was going to pass out. And then it was about five years ago, I was in Iowa, we used to live there, and I was at a clinic, I was giving blood uh, for some tests that they were going to take. And thank, you know, thank goodness I was sitting down, actually, because um, as she was taking the blood, the nurse was telling me about what she was doing or whatnot. I just totally blacked out. I mean, I was... And, you know, I must not be the only one, though, because they had an arm on the chair that was padded, and they bring it down like this in front of me. So when I blacked out, I was like, <laughs> and kind of slumped forward. I mean, I was, I was gone. I was like a, a girl at a Beatles concert in the 60s or something, you know? <laughs> In fact, I learned this, though. Popular Science Magazine says that 3 to 4% of us faint at the sight of blood or at the mention of blood or things related to that. In fact, just looking out over you here now, I, I see six or seven people that have fainted even just while I've been talking in the last three minutes. So, you know, just to make myself feel better about all of this, I went online and I found some videos of other people fainting so that I don't have to feel so bad about myself. This stuff is pretty funny. I don't know. Take a look. Bueno, en cuanto a la a la a la demanda y a la demanda. Niyetiyle geldiğini asla düşünmüyorum. Yani bunun hem kendisi 
파랗게 민감한 모습을 나타내면서 Dershanelerin kapatılma kararına İstanbul Pendik Milli Eğitim You alright? I'm passing out. Okay, are you okay? You want to hang on? Passing out. Okay. Why don't you you want to sit down? Go on. Okay. All right. Oh, oh, oh, oh, oh. You okay? You probably would not have done well in ancient Israeli culture. In fact, because blood showed up in a very unique and graphic way in their culture. But it's a way that still connects with us today. Before I tell you about blood in their culture, though, let me just step back a second and uh, set the stage for you. Perhaps you're familiar with, in the Old Testament, the second uh, book of the Bible is called Exodus. And Exodus is about uh, God's chosen people are finding themselves as slaves of the Egyptians in Egypt. But then God, through his hand-picked leader Moses, leads them uh, on a walking campaign back to Canaan, the land that God had initially promised them, and the land that we know today uh, as Israel on our map. And once they get free from uh, ex- uh, uh, Egypt, God sets up a theocracy amongst his people. That is, he sets up a kingdom that has no king because he himself is going to be their chief leader. And then he gives them rules and regulations like the Ten Commandments. Uh, They had picked up a lot of bad, dysfunctional, social, and and spiritual habits while they were in Egypt. And God is looking to uh, unwind all of those problems. And then he gives them a new worship style. He wants to reconnect with them. He wants to reintroduce them to himself, connect with them relationally, emotionally, spiritually. And so this new worship style is designed to lead them towards that. And the new worship style is going to serve them during this transition period. It'll also serve them once they're in their new land. But it also becomes a foreshadowing towards the eventual worship style that he'll offer them and all of us through Jesus Christ. And that's the second book of the Bible. That's Exodus. And the next book of the Bible is called Leviticus. Leviticus is all a bunch of detailed regulations around this new worship style that God's given them. And one of the prominent features of Leviticus 
is around animal sacrifices. And uh, animal sacrifices were not necessarily something that would have been new to the Israelites. In fact, many of the cultures that were around Israel would have some kind of sacrificial system. In fact, some of them even had human sacrifice systems, something that God found detestable. But God, they would have the Israelites uh, been familiar with different sacrificial systems. But God gives him, them his own sacrificial system, one that is new, it's different, and it's used for his own redemptive purposes. He wants to connect them not to uh, a brutish, fickle God uh, that they would have maybe experienced in some other culture, but to introduce them to him, the one true God, a God of, of justice, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of purity, And so he gives them this sacrificial system. And Yahweh, God of the Bible, uh, leads them in this new direction. The animal sacrifices play such a prominent role in Leviticus that Leviticus wastes no time in getting right into it. In fact, on the screen behind me are the first several verses of the book of Leviticus. And God gave Moses detailed instructions about a new portable worship center that he wanted them to set up that would be the heart of this new worship style. It was called the tabernacle. And uh, the tabernacle was a forerunner to the uh, temple that they would set up in Jerusalem, and the animal sacrifices would continue there. And uh, in the first parts of Leviticus, it talks about a bunch of burnt offerings. Some of them are animals, some of them are not Uh, But the offerings are all burnt on an altar that's at the tent of meeting, at the center of this tabernacle, all incinerated to the Lord uh, as an offering to him. And so you'd be there at the temple and you'd bring a bull or a goat or uh, a lamb, uh, a bird, whatever it was, and the animal would be based on maybe your income level. God, by the way, wasn't interested in the size of the animal. He was much more interested you know, in the heart of the worshiper, which of course is still true today. But as you're bringing these sacrifices, uh, God said, look, I want the sacrifice to be from your own herd. I want it to be from your flock. Don't have it be a wild animal. And he's saying that because he says, I want this to cost you something. I don't want you to just uh, skate by on this. You know, that's kind of the whole point of a sacrifice, isn't it? That it's a sacrifice to give it up. And that's true, too, of course, of our worship today. And then the other thing God says is, I want the animal to be without defect. No blemish. No, no birthmark. No limp. No third eye. You know, he wanted to make sure that they weren't pawning off their rejects on him. You know, God would like to be taken seriously. And, of course, that's still true today as well. And so let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 1. I want to focus in on what is happening at this altar that's in the tabernacle. In fact, I'm going to read a couple of the verses that are on the screen behind me. The verses I'm going to read will be over here on the side screen. Let's get into the passage. It says, you must present your animal sacrifice at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And you're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it will be accepted on your behalf 
to make atonement for you. And you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you know, oftentimes the New Testament gives commentary on something that's happening in the Old Testament. And this is no exception. We could go to Hebrews in the New Testament. It says this about what we're talking about here in Leviticus 1. Blood was sprinkled on both the tabernacle and on everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Guys, there is a lot of blood here. You know, think of it. Millions and millions of Israelites coming wave after wave with their animal sacrifices. Now, I feel bad if one of these priests was in that 3 or 4% that Popular Science Magazine says faints at the sight of blood. It'd be a real downer for that guy to go to work, you know. He might uh, enjoy Jeff's upcoming teaching series, Thank God It's Monday, right? He'd be glad the weekend was over. Let's take a look at what's happening in this passage. God asked that the head of every household, as they bring their animal sacrifice, that he would come and lay his hand on the head of the animal. What's going on there? Well, two things. First of all, it's to identify that person with that animal. You know, there's a lot of worshipers coming and going, a lot of hustle and bustle. And so you're basically saying to the priest, hey, uh, this is me and this is my animal. But far more importantly... It's to imply the connection between the worshiper and the animal. It's to say, look, here I am, I'm a sinner, and here's my animal that's about to die because I'm a sinner. And then what happens next in the passage? Well, it says in the passage that you slit the animal's throat. You know, the priest was the one that would take the blood and would splash it against the side of the altar. The priest was the one that would arrange the carcass on the altar. But you were the one that slit the animal's throat. You were the one that skinned the animal. The knife was in your hands. And so now we're back to this. How are you at the sight of blood? Because when God called them to worship him, it wasn't a, uh, a scrubbed or sterile worship. It wasn't that you would uh, bring Billy the goat, the family pet, and the priest would take him and he would take Billy off in a back room and he would slaughter him there and do all your dirty work for you. No, that's not what's happening here. No, you would bring you know, Benny the bull or Billy the goat and I imagine it would go something like this. The priest would say, okay, this is you, this is your animal. Okay, now, put your hand on the head of this animal. Okay, good. And then the priest would look you in the eye, and he would say, are you here because you're a horrible sinner, and you serve a holy God, and the penalty for your sin is death? And you would say, yeah, That's why I'm here. And he would say, and do you choose to follow a gracious God who is willing to transfer your death sentence 
to this blameless, pure animal who has done nothing to deserve this? And you would say, yeah, that's why I'm here. And then the priest would say, okay then, take this knife. Take this knife and feel the weight of death. And feel the kindness of God. And then you would slit the animal's throat. And the knife was in your hand. Let me take you to a different passage of Scripture. This one's in uh, the New Testament. In Acts, the church is first forming. And the apostles in Acts chapter 2 find themselves with a spontaneous opportunity to minister to a crowd of thousands of people. And so, you know, leaning into this opportunity, uh, the apostle Peter stands up amongst his peers and silences the crowd and gives a, a compelling speech inspired by the Holy Spirit. And excerpts of the speech are, are on the screen behind me here. And let me read a few lines from what Peter says to that crowd of thousands of people. He says, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, you nailed him to the cross. You killed him. You know, not many of us like it when somebody accuses us of doing something wrong. And I'm willing to bet that fewer of us like it when somebody accuses us of doing something wrong in front of a bunch of other people. And I'd be willing to bet further that most of us wouldn't like it if a stranger stood up in front of us right now and said, you all are a bunch of murderers and you're all in cahoots with a bunch of other murderers. So how is Peter able to get away with this? Well, the answer is because it's a spiritual truth. And as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And because it was of the Spirit, and because it was the truth, see what happens in the passage. What is the crowds of thousands of people? What's their response to Peter? Well, it goes on in the Scriptures, and it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, if this is true, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and they were added to the church. 3,000 of them right then. Now, we know from the Gospels that on the day that Jesus died, there was a crowd of people that was jeering and cheering for his execution. But this speech that Peter is giving... This is happening two months after that. And you know, Jerusalem's a pretty big place. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of pilgrims in town from a, for the festival that was going on at the, at the time. And so perhaps some of the people that are in front of Peter that day were some of the same people that were 
cheering for Jesus' execution two months before. But it stands to good reason that almost all of these people were not those people. And so why is Peter standing up in front of this large crowd of fellow citizens and pilgrims from throughout the Roman Empire and saying to them, you did this. You killed him. Well, the answer is that Peter is speaking in the broadest, sweepingest terms. He's saying, look, guys, let's get real here right now. He's saying, your sin, my sin, our sin has collectively led to Jesus being killed. Peter's saying, look at the recent events of the day, and then look at your sin, and then I want you to take those two things and connect them to each other. He's looking out over the crowd, and he's saying, your sin, your evil, your hearts of darkness, your rebellious spirit has all directly led to Jesus being killed. He's saying you would be wise to make the connection between your sin and this blameless death of Jesus Christ. You know, I want to go back to um, Leviticus. I'm sure that many in ancient Israel came to, over time, just kind of go through the motions of the animal sacrifices that they were doing. But forgetting the, the humbled heart that God was looking for. But just doing the thing, but doing it in a disconnected way. I'm sure that there are others who just kind of went to church, bringing their sacrifices time after time, but not really absorbing what they were doing. Not really processing it, just spiritually disconnected. Thoughtlessly slitting the throats of animals. Just heartlessly slitting the throats of animals time after time. Because, hey, that's just what we do. Or that's how my parents raised me. Or they would say, uh, yeah, I, I follow God. And then they'd go back to their tent and they'd cuss out their kids. Or they'd go back to their tent and they'd gossip about their coworker. Or they'd go back to their tent and they'd fudge on their tax return. And it was because of that that God says to them through the prophet Hosea at one point in the Old Testament, he says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me. Know me. I want that more than I want burnt offerings, God says. It's not that God at that point was reversing the field on the animal sacrifice system that he had given them. It was that God was saying to the Israelites, look, if you aren't going to, with some amount of humility, some amount of sobriety, acknowledge that your sin is real and that the death that your sin is causing is real, then what are we doing this for? You know, communion on Sunday and then shoplifting on Monday don't necessarily mix together well. Or baptism on Sunday and then judgmental hatred of your mother-in-law on Monday 
doesn't really jive. Or raising your hands in worship on Sunday and then lying to your wife on Monday doesn't show a holy and gracious God that you got it when you were slitting the throats of the animals. And when Peter said, you nailed him to the cross, many in the crowd before Peter that day did not make the connection. Just as many at the time of the tabernacle went through the motions and were not making the connection. You know, everyone in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had been crucified. It was a big deal. It was big news. But not everyone took it into themselves. I'm sure that there were many in Jerusalem who just said to themselves, yeah, I heard that rabbi got executed. Um, not sure what that means for me. Interesting event. But there were many that day in front of Peter that did get it. They did make the connection. In fact, the passage says 3,000 people made that connection in that moment by God's Holy Spirit leading them. And they made the same connection that John the Baptist made three years before when he stood at the Jordan River and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, Jesus, our leader. They saw their sin for what it was, offensive to our holy God, needing payment, and by the graciousness of God, transferable to a blameless sacrifice, his own son, Jesus Christ. They were there with Peter, and they said basically, you know what? I get it. The knife is in my hands. And listen, at the tabernacle, the knife, it was a gruesome tool. But it was also a worship implement. And to hold the knife well, to hold the knife with the right spirit, was to acknowledge your sin and was to acknowledge God's covering of your sin. And little did those Israelites know those, in those early days of the tabernacle, thousands of years later, this knife would become a hammer. You nailed him to the cross. You killed him, Peter said to them. And just as the ancient call to clarity was, do you get it? Do you get why the knife is in your hand? So also, Peter's new call to them and his new call to us was, do you get it? Do you get why the hammer is in your hand? Will we acknowledge that our sin has directly led to Jesus' death? So how are you at the sight of blood? How are you at the sight of divine, eternal, all-powerful blood shed for you? Will you acknowledge your sin? You know, when I was a kid, uh, G.I. Joe had these public service announcements where he would say, and knowing is half the battle. You know, you really don't need a savior Unless you need saving. 
Will you know your sin tonight? To see inside yourself and say, you know what? I'm so messed up. I really need some saving. And let me say this to you. I don't want to, I'm not up here in judgment on anyone. I'm still working through this stuff myself. I'm still wading through my own apathy, my own entitlement, my own selfishness, my pride. I'm just like you. I'm battling through my greed, my lust, my judgmental thoughts, my anger. You know, it was about five years ago, uh, my wife and I were living in Iowa at the time. We were having a conversation uh, later at night, and we were talking about something I was frustrated about at work. And uh, I just got, I got really frustrated as we were talking. I ended up uh, leaving the room. I remember I walked through our bedroom. I'm pretty sure I threw something. And then I, uh, I took the door to the master bath and I slammed it behind me. And when I did, I slammed it so hard the, the jam and the, the door frame broke loose. Not one of my finer moments. And then my, uh, my oldest son was um, like three or four at the time. And he woke up. He had already gone to bed. And he was scared. And he was scared because of his dad. You know, not something you want for your son. And I remember it was bad enough that my, my wife said, maybe you should leave the house to go cool off. And I, I praise God for a godly wife. You know, we got to go inside you and I in our, our inner world and say, how am I really doing? You know, it says in the Psalms, search me. Search me, Father. Know my heart. Show me if there is an evil way in me. And lead me instead in a path that's everlasting. New Testament, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then Paul answers his own question. He cries out and he says, Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, my Lord. You know, we're going to continue our time together tonight here with a few songs and two response opportunities. One is communion. As we start to sing, our communion servers will come forward. They'll give you a wafer. They'll give you juice. It represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ that he gave for us. I won't be leading us in a time where we all take it together at the same time. But if you would like to take something from the tray, you can take communion on your own or with family or friends that you're here with. And then also during this time, and we're going to have plenty of time, there's going to be several songs in a row. Don't feel pressed for time. Also during this time, we have this cross here. And there are uh, red squares of paper that are in a seat back 
uh, right in front of you or nearby you. There's also pens there. And you can write something on that piece of paper and you can bring it forward and nail it to this cross. You could, you could write a sin. You could confess something. You, you could write a prayer on there. Maybe you want to write uh, just a note of praise to him or of thanksgiving. And when you nail it to the cross, you can, you can nail it face up or face down or folded, whatever you'd like. And you can come forward and maybe form two lines here, hand the hammer back to the person behind you as they're coming forward. You know, you'll be here at the cross and you'll have an opportunity to privately, through that note, express something from your heart to his. And you'll have a hammer and you'll take one of these nails that's down here at the base of the cross and as you pound that in, be reminded It was our specific moral failings that have collectively led to his death. And you'll feel the connection between your life and his death for you. So with that in mind, let's worship him. Friend, you may lose a battle from time to time. But he has won the war. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, the Bible says. It says in Hebrews 10, it says, We are made holy. We, you and I, we're made holy because of the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Don't have to keep going back over and over like in the olden days. Once and for all. You know how the Bible ends? Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. Hey, we're going to celebrate that tomorrow night. And then on Sunday morning, we've got our three Easter services. Let's come back. And let's talk a little bit about what happens between here and him making all things new. God bless you. Great to be in a church family with you. Good night.